0: Storytellers, the stories that we create are going to be better and more diverse if the people working on them have had different experiences and come from different backgrounds.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black indigenous and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Raymond Zalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamura wong the other half of our whole host.
2: Our guest this week is Christine Lee. She is a Korean-American artist working as a storyboard artist at Warner Brothers. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself?
0: Hello. Um, I pretty much covered it. I've <laughs> <laughs> I only been working in the industry for about a year and a half now. I uh, grew up in Washington, in the Seattle area. I went to school at the University of Washington with a non-art degree and then in 2017 I decided that I wanted to get into animation so I moved down to California and I took some classes and yeah now I'm a storyboard artist
1: now now you're in it now you're here
0: I know it's like surreal (laughs) that's
1: crazy very linear yeah, I'm so excited to dig deeper about your career and hopefully your journey can be really helpful to our audience.
0: I really hope so, because when I was in high school, like I, I didn't even know that this was an option as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really know anything about art careers besides like being a studio artist. So mm-hmm. it kind of never even registered that art could be viable or be like a wise financial option. Mm -hmm.
3: So, So, mm -hmm.
0: honestly, if I had had more information when I was younger, I probably could have made more streamlined choices. I probably could have gotten (laughs) this job a lot earlier, but it's fine. It's fine.
2: (laughs) The way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices, and then you have to choose in between the two of them and let us know why. Okay.
1: Would you rather be a secret agent from OWCA from Phineas and Ferb or a and d operative from Codename Kid Next Door?
0: Well, this might be controversial, but I like being a human. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'll i go with the kids next door then. I guess there's something fun about being a kid and like their enemies are the teenagers, right? Yeah, like yeah. teenagers
2: and adults and stuff.
0: yeah. Fuck adults <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah fight against your oppressors, <laughs> Christine knows where it's at, okay, so if you were so if you were a candy operative, what number would you be?
0: Oh, that's right, number three was the the girl, right, yeah, she was always my favorite character Oh, cute, so mm-hmm. I'd probably go with her, or maybe I'd you know pick a totally new number like sixty nine. <laughs>
2: I feel like it's fortunate that kids next door was not around when like 420 and 69 were like
1: super popular
2: <laughs> I know
1: true <laughs> dude I would if I were to choose a number I would be 404 that way it couldn't be found
0: wow,
2: that's,
3: wow.
0: Yeah. you
2: were thinking about that question <laughs> yeah <laughs> I feel like you've asked this just because you're like I have an answer yeah <laughs> no that was on the fly <laughs> that's really good thank you
0: or maybe I'd be like the edgy OC character and that's like negative one
1: or Dude, like- negative one. Dude, negative one. That'd be dope. That'd be dope. You're like super, super. That's really good. <laughs> that could be like the black ops of like the codename Next
2: door. I love that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. These story people have big brains. I'd probably just be 465, but that's because when I was a child uh, and I was like, time to make a Neopets account all of the name that I wanted was taken, so I just put some numbers behind it.
0: <laughs> Same. Yeah. I think my account for Neopest had like 316 after it.
2: Yeah, it's like one of the... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got a, a final question for you. Would you rather be a Pokemon trainer or a I th- Well,
0: okay. I watched a little bit of Digimon growing up. And I did like the show, but honestly, the rules of Digimon seem a little bit arbitrary, but like <laughs> it's if not enough a Pokemon structure trainer, yeah honestly <laughs> i I and they, the fact that they talk on it was like a little bit weird to me <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's too much. I'd rather not know,
0: <laughs> but like if I'm a Pokemon trainer, I can just have like a really cute little puppy Pokemon or like a horse that I can ride around, so. I'm going to lean towards Pokemon Trainer. Okay, that's, that's, fair. that's, yeah, cool. that's fair. Yeah, um,
1: that's tra- <laughs> fair. I don't know. I, th- I think I would always lean Digimon or DigiDestined.
0: Hmm, really?
1: Just because, like, any, anybody can be a Pokemon Trainer. All you have to do is turn 10 and pick up a Pokeball <laughs> from your local professor. But only a special few could be selected to save the digital world as a DigiDestined. Ray just wants to be special. I do just want to be special. <laughs> <laughs>
0: When you can have like a cute little Digimon, and it's like your little companion, but then it digi-evolves into this just horrific monster, or like a human cyborg creature, and it just—I don't know what our relationship would be.
1: No, but it it, it Digivolves <laughs> back. It can, oh, that's it that can, is true. It can de Digivolve. It doesn't always have to stay as a armored dog. Yeah,
2: but there are like human <laughs> human Pokemon too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say yeah, there is like my Pokemon. champ or. <laughs> Yeah. i love those images of people who are like how to cuddle your pokemon and it's like a pikachu is like yes and the other one is like I'm a champ and it's like no <laughs>
0: yeah like how do i feed angemon? am i gonna invite him to dinner and <laughs> like make food sit at the dining table i don't understand
1: <laughs> no you have him de-digival to patamon and you f- you feed him some snackies That'd be really
2: cute. Fair enough. Either way, Pokemon trainer
1: are locked in. <laughs> well, awesome. Thanks for playing in between with us. Uh, Christine, hopefully those weren't too hard and hopefully you enjoyed yourself a bit.
0: Good questions.
1: Okay, so let's jump into this. What is your typical week like as a storyboard artist at Warner Brothers Animation?
0: So on the show that we work on, we kind of have a more flexible schedule or like a a longer schedule per episode, which gives us a little bit more time to do things in between. And since we are working from home, this might not be what the typical boarding experience is like, but generally I will wake up in the mornings, log on to the server VPN for our studio, check if there are any meetings that I have to attend, which are all virtual now, Check if there are any deadlines or, or things I need to do. And then basically for the rest of the day, I just have Storyboard Pro open and I will draw what I need to draw for my work.
1: So you actually got to be at Warner Brothers storyboarding a bit before the whole lockdown and pandemic kind of happened. So how has that experience transitioned for you? Like how how different is it? And do you feel like you've been more or less productive since working from home?
0: Uh, When I was working in the office, things were definitely more organized. It it kind of forces you into a a schedule when you have to go to work and you have to take lunch at certain times. Mm -hmm. And you also clock off at a certain time and you just you can't work after that because you're not at your desk. Whereas there is kind of a thing when you're working from home where there's never really an off time unless you're very diligent about that yourself and mm-hmm. that can be kind of tough. I'll just be honest, I my my productivity is lower when I'm at home <laughs> versus when I'm at work.
1: No, and that's understandable too. You yeah. at work you can feed off the energy of your coworkers.
0: I was just about to say that. Yeah, that's actually pretty important for me. It kind of just gives me that momentum to keep working throughout the day whereas when I have to do it myself it's definitely a bit harder.
2: Yeah, I agree.
0: At the same mm-hmm. time, you know, work from home does have certain benefits. I can wear whatever I want. <laughs> I can eat whatever I want.
1: <laughs> yeah, Your break's going to be as long or, or as short as you want it to be.
0: Exactly. Although if it's too mm-hmm. long, it's going to bite you back in the butt later.
1: Very, very true. Very true. Also, something I've, I felt like I should have mentioned earlier is that Christine is actually a co-worker of mine. We both work at Warner Brothers on the same uh, project, uh, Gremlin Secret of the Mogwai. So I'm really happy to have her on on this podcast.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm really glad to work with you, Ray. And congratulations on your storyboarding job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Uh, th- thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, en- en- enough, enough about me. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so one of the things I kind of want to ask is kind of like, you know, pick your brain is what kind of things do you keep in mind when you're first handed your pages from your episode director?
0: I don't know if I approach boarding the same as more seasoned storyboarders do. I definitely feel like I'm still learning a lot. But what helps me is to just think about what's happening in a fairly practical way. So what I usually do first is try to get a sense of the main beats for my section and then try to work out the staging first, which means placing the characters in the scene and Maybe seeing where the camera could be for certain shots, seeing if there are certain compositions for very specific parts of it that I I really want to get, and then try to work around where the camera will be around that. Just starting that way helps a lot. It's kind of hard to understand how your section is going to flow or what is being communicated until... I can actually see all of it.
1: Also, I guess very briefly, can you also explain like the role of a storyboard artist in a production for audience members that may not be too familiar with it?
0: Yeah, definitely. I've had to explain this to a lot, like to my family, because <laughs> <laughs> they don't really understand. <laughs> I guess i describe it as we are drawing what's going to happen in the movie or, t- or TV show before you actually begin animating on it. So what this means is we're usually given a script or an outline of the words that are present in uh, the media, and we have to decide what is actually in the frame. So what kind of background, where the character is, which characters, and what they're doing.
2: Is, there, um, is Secrets of the Mogwai a script-driven show, or do you guys just get like a general outline for your episodes?
0: Ours is script-driven. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm.
2: So do you get a lot of like camera direction in the script, or is it just mostly dialogue?
0: No, it's. I, I think generally... People try to avoid putting camera direction in scripts. One because it can kind of mess mess you up if you're if you want to take in a slightly different direction than what's written in the script. They they kind of avoid putting visual like overtly visual language in the scripts, mm. but they will describe like what is happening, and you can interpolate. Okay, if I see like an object described in the script, then I know I'm probably going to have to put a close up for that.
1: Mm. Hmm. In a previous episode, we actually talked a bit about being a revisionist. And uh, But for those that don't know, a storyboard revisionist is different from a storyboard artist in the sense of like it's more technical. You're kind of cleaning up poses. You're addressing any notes that might have been left over. You're also uh, might be plusing up acting, putting things more on model or checking proportions. So, But for you, Christine, can you tell us your experience when you started your first industry job on a Kippo? And the age of the wonder beasts.
0: When I started as a revisionist on Kipo, okay, well, I didn't know anything. I was extremely scared that I, I just like, oh my gosh, I don't I don't know anything. But oh, a everybody big <laughs> 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 Luckily everybody I worked with was extremely supportive and patient with me. I okay, oh here's a little story. So on the very first day that I started drawing, I just I didn't really know what to do, but I was given a very simple assignment. It was basically just clean up the background on one panel. And I spent all day working on that one panel. And when I showed my director at the end of the day, he was like, this isn't quite what we wanted. Can you clean it up a little bit more? And outwardly, I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. No problem. But inside, I'm like, oh, my God. This is is my first drawing, and he hates it. (laughs) Oh, no. So... I I just I rushed and I got it done by the end of the day and I showed my director again and I was like is this better and he was like oh yeah that's way more what we wanted great job and I was like oh my god (laughs) um so I was very relieved but I I guess just I I got one drawing done the first day which is abysmally slow (laughs) for most revisionists but over time I did get More and more fast. It was kind of a slow going. So like the second day, I might have gotten like three panels done. The third day, maybe like five panels done. So it it took a while to get up to normal revisionist pace. Mm -hmm. But luckily, most people that you work with have been where you are. And they're pretty understanding. Like as long as you are trying, as long as you are asking questions and willing to learn, people will usually be patient with you.
1: No, it's very, very true, especially like when it is like your first job and it's something with like revisions, which is at least for storyboard artists or people that are wanting to get into storyboarding, it's a very entry level position. Mm -hmm. There is this understanding of a grace period or this understanding that you're kind of still kind of like learning the ropes and getting the hang of it. I know my first week on Gremlins doing revisions, Brendan Kohler he was there. He was, He's a on, on on the same show, but he was helping with revisions. And he was there specifically, I think, to also kind of guide me and kind of walk me through my first week. That way I wasn't overwhelmed.
2: I'm interested because I know I feel like backgrounds is something that a lot of people struggle with if they're more like into characters or something like that. Uh, is doing like cleaned versions of backgrounds really uh, common in like storyboard or revisionist work?
0: It pops up. I-, I think the most common type of background-related revision that I've I've seen is just like the scene is missing a background and it needs one. When I was a revisionist on Dug Plugs, it was a CG show, which means we generally did have CG sets. Like with the current show, we could take screenshots of the CG sets and use those as backgrounds. Kipo was a 2D show, so if there was a missing background, it would just need to be drawn in most of the time.
1: So for you, how was that transition period from when you went from being a student taking classes at the Concept uh, Design Academy to being a revisionist at DreamWorks TV?
0: Well, okay, so I had taken a couple storyboarding classes at CDA, and doing that had kind of let me see the work of other students, as well as the work of some people who were working in industry. I don't really know how to explain it, but I just kind of felt like I was ready to start working. And then almost immediately after, I got the the call from DreamWorks. So it was a weird coincidence.
1: <laughs> That's awesome, though.
0: Yeah, and it was nice. Although, like, as soon as I got the job, I was like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I changed
2: <laughs> <laughs> <That's> my <HMR>. mind. <laughs> Take me back. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was scary, but, like, I actually got... The job through a teacher at CDA. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he saw my my work and he knew that somebody was hiring. So he recommended me. I actually started out doing freelance and then transitioned into doing revisionist work.
1: That's really dope. So through through Concept Design Academy, kind of like a recommendation, or kind of like it served as a valuable networking opportunity for you.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: So because you already started freelancing, did did you still have to take a test or did they just bring you on full time?
0: I I think the freelance kind of was a test. At least that's how I treated Ah. it. So I didn't have to take a Mm -hmm. test in addition to that. Um, I basically just finished the freelance assignment and then they asked me if I wanted to transition to full time.
1: Oh, that's really cool.
2: That's really nice. That's kind of a natural way to like integrate into the process.
1: So you kind of already mentioned it briefly, but so after Kippo, you went to do revisions on Doug on Plugs. And like you mentioned, Doug's Unplugged is a CGI show for young children and a much different vibe than a 2D action show like Kippo. Did you feel better prepared when you started your second job in the industry?
0: I definitely felt more confident. Like, even if I didn't know the specific requirements of that show, at least I knew what was needed to be done as a revisionist. You know, I I knew how to communicate with the director. I knew how to open Storyboard Pro. And Mm. this might... Not be true in all situations, but I I felt like preschool media would be just easier in general. (laughs) (laughs) Was it? (laughs) Yes, but (laughs) preschool also does have a lot of restrictions Mm. because it's for for kids. Stuff like you have to be very, very careful about showing anything that could be copied by kids. Mm -hmm. Anything that's Mm -hmm. like vaguely violent or like even just too excited or fast. And our, our budget was a little bit limited too, so that was actually a really cool experience in learning like how to be efficient with your boarding. Because sometimes you don't have an unlimited amount of backgrounds or limited amount of characters or props. In CG shows, every prop that is in the show needs to be basically ordered and then modeled. Mm. Usually a show will have a certain amount of credits that they can spend on those props, so you have to be very careful about how many you're using in your episode. Try to reuse them whenever you can. We also experienced the thing where the animation studio we used was very literal in how they interpreted our boards. Mm. So we uh. had to be a bit more careful in how accurate our, our boards were, especially for stuff like proportions of characters. As a preschool show, they, they were kind of like bobble-headed. They had really big heads and really big eyes. They were very cute, very kawaii. But if (laughs) if the heads were, like, not big enough in our drawings, then when they got translated to 3D models, sometimes the heads would be too big in the frame and get cut off or just, like, be really bad composition. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, because I I was, like, I was going to ask, like, did they stage it the way you kind of had it because the the drawing of the head wasn't exactly proportioned? They didn't use creative freedom to adjust the angle to show the character's properly in frame to get the essence of the board.
0: Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what was happening. They weren't they mm. they were like doing it as literally as possible even if it kind of didn't make sense, if that makes sense. Mm. But I I I'm glad that I had that experience cuz it gave me more perspective on just the production pipeline in general. Like, yeah, when you finish your storyboards, it doesn't end there. You know, it gets sent off to producers to, for review, it gets sent down to the animation people, and then that gets sent to the lighting department. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like thinking about the fact that I'm kind of just one part in this collaborative process.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So for you, how did uh, Doug um, plugs, how did the opportunity come about? Because I know at DreamWorks, I think they do an amazing job to keep their artists. And I know that they, if an artist is wrapping up on a show, they try to see if they can move them to a different show that might be starting up that's looking for people. Is that something that happened with you?
0: That's exactly what happened. And mm-hmm. you're right. DreamWorks is very good about that in particular they have a, like an internal portfolio system
3: mm-hmm.
0: and like an internal recruiter who will take your portfolio which can include like technically nda stuff because it's all internal and they will like give your name to different productions who are looking for people yeah i actually had two interviews for two different preschool tv shows but i i went with dug Unplugs.
1: plugs that's cute is there a specific reason why
0: not really <laughs> I think I just maybe vibe better with the creators. Um, It turned out to to be good, though, because the story team on that show was amazing. I'm still friends with them. I still hang out with them. To be honest, that's the main reason why I I really like the animation industry. Mm It's like I love the people who I work with. Everyone is like really Mm -hmm. fun and supportive and friendly. I just like hanging out with him.
1: Yeah, hopefully in the future that's something we can do more of. I know. Right now it's like, I know. Well, I know our show, uh, our team does a does their best to try to host some game nights. I know it isn't always consistent, but it's nice that that's being organized so that way we can have some sense of like hangout.
2: A little bit of normalcy. Some social interaction. Mm-hmm.
1: So after Doug unplugs, you moved on to Gremlins' Secrets of the Mogwai. Did it feel like... And this is you jumping from a revisionist to a full-on board artist. Did it feel like a jump uh, switching from those two positions?
0: Definitely. Like that feeling of just terror that I felt when I first started working as a revisionist, I felt again (laughs) when I transitioned to storyboarding. It's like, oh my God, I'm not ready. Um, (laughs) 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 Because at that point, I... I I think I'd only been doing revisionist work for about a year, maybe a little bit less.
1: I just want to quickly say that's honestly really, really amazing. It seems like it was under a year before you jumped into storyboards. The common thing I tend to hear about, it's like typically a revisionist stays a revisionist like two to three years before they get their first storyboarding opportunity. So the fact that you were able to jump so fast, it speaks volumes of your your skill level and who you are as a person to work with.
0: Aw, thank you. I I do feel like I got kind of lucky. But so, yeah, I, I didn't have too much experience under my belt. Uh, the main positive, I guess, is that I did know the peop- some of the people I would be working with as a storyboard artist. So I felt a little mo- more comfortable in that sense. But, yeah, I was, I was really scared. Doug and Plugs was probably, like, my most stable work experience. Hmm. Like, I probably had the best work-life like balance on that show than anything else. Interesting. It, it was mm-hmm. very much, like, clock into work at 9 o'clock get my assignments, do my assignments and clock out (laughs) and maybe even have time for hobbies, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was deciding whether or not to transition into storyboarding, there was, I think, a part of me that was a little bit afraid of losing that stability.
3: Mm.
0: Like, I felt like I had just gotten comfortable because when I had first started in the industry, I was obviously really nervous and inexperienced. But like, I, I felt like I reached a point where I could kind of expect what was gonna happen that's I don't know that's a nice thing to have even if it's not necessarily good for you when you're super comfortable you might not be challenging yourself is what I want to mm. say mm-hmm. yeah and I think I was aware of that too I wasn't improving as, as quickly anymore and it probably was about time that I did something that would be more challenging for myself But I I was still really scared.
2: I mean, I think it's okay to like feel like you are comfortable doing a job, at least for a while. Like, yeah, a lot of people jump in from like school straight into a job and like they don't take a break. And that can be really hard on like, like in the long term of a Mm -hmm. career. But I think it's okay to kind of like rest in a place for a while and be like, I'm comfortable with this. And like, I don't have to be challenging myself every single (laughs) waking moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's probably a healthy mindset to have. Mm
2: hmm. But that's cool that you um, ended up taking the opportunity and like moving up and uh, jumping into these new jobs.
0: Yeah, thank you. You know, I like from the beginning, I knew I wanted to be a storyboard artist. So Mm -hmm. how could I say no? This was like my dream job.
1: Mm -hmm. It seemed like there was a lot of people from Kippo that migrated over to Gremlins. I started working. I know our supervising director, Michael Chang, was one of the episodic directors for Kippo. Did that kind of connection with the people from Kippo? Uh, help you to kind of transition into the story role a bit better or did knowing those people help the opportunity of gremlins kind of come along
0: yeah it definitely helped um mike chang was actually my director on kipo so i had direct experience working under him as a director and that's awesome he, he was the one who helped me get the job on gremlins which i'm very grateful he was willing to take that chance on me i noticed when i was working as a revisionist that there's kind of a an unspoken part of the job where you need to be able to adjust the way you work to the director that you're working with.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In some ways, you might have to like adjust the way you draw a little bit. Maybe not, you know, too much, but they, they might have a certain style.
1: Yeah. Some directors might have a specific shop preference. When we had certain guest presenters, some of them were like, oh, I hate POVs. <laughs> yeah. I, hate straight, I hate straight POVs. If they do a POV, it's always over the shoulder. Like mm. um, I, I never want I think Zack Schneider is like that. Zach Schneider oh. when he did a presentation, yeah. he was like, I don't like I don't like POVs. I always said be over shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um and other people was like, Oh, I don't like Dutch angles. I don't do Dutch angles. So mm-hmm. it's like it makes sense with director even like um one of our previous guests marvin was kind of saying the same thing he worked with different directors on the show he was on and each one had a different style or flavor that they like directing in. and it's yeah. like adjusting to that so mm-hmm. i think that's something cool that you bring up and it looks like it is kind of common within the industry that yeah it when you, if you if you start working you might have to cater what you do to whoever's above you
0: and sometimes it's not even the art itself it's how they like to communicate or how they like to give you assignments. When I was in Dug and Plugs, we had two revisionists divided among three directors. And so I got to work with all the directors, which is actually really helpful. Some directors are very precise in what they want. What they'll do is they usually give you a marked up storyboard file with red lines, which are like draw overs of exactly what they want in what frame. And you're basically just copying what they outlined but make it look nicer. Mm-hmm. But I had another director who was a lot more... He just liked to talk about the kind of feedback he was trying to address. And his philosophy was like, if you understand the problem, you can probably figure out your own solution or us together, we can verbally discuss a possible solution and then you can just go do it. And I don't have to draw exactly (laughs) how Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I appreciate both ways, like the freedom that the latter gives you, but also sometimes seeing a director's vision gives you insight in how they're thinking and what kind of... You know, what kind of composition, what kind of poses does someone more experienced go for?
1: Mm-hmm. No, definitely both methods are definitely very valid. And both can be a very uh, good learning experience, like you mentioned. So for for you, uh, what skills from being a storyboard revisionist did you feel transferred over when you started storyboarding?
0: Learning how to draw, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, this might be weird, but like kind of the the one area I've always felt a little bit self-conscious about maybe I don't know if that's the right word is that I I don't always create very polished or pretty drawings and I think in part like that was never really my style of drawing even before I got my first job and because I never went to art school I never had to like do finished pieces like that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I don't I can be pretty impatient with my drawings like I want to communicate my idea as efficiently as possible. But sometimes you do need to just clean up and make it look nicer. But being in a revisionist role, you are forced to make things look nicer. And it gives me, it, it helped give me a sense of like how far you need to go in storyboarding because you don't need to clean it up all the way. You know, mm-hmm. your, your boards aren't going to be on the screen. It just needs to communicate. Probably just the most helpful thing is when you're a revisionist, you get to see the work of other board artists. You get to see the way directors think and like revise shots and address notes. And that translates to storyboarding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think especially when you're a revisionist, exactly how you mentioned, you get to work on a variety of different board artists' work. And you can act as a sponge trying to digest and uh, understand their film language and how they address certain things, like how they addressed... Uh, dialogue scene between two characters or how they address an action scene how they address like uh, a sad moment and like what like their shot choices and i think that's one of the things why like revisionist if they do tend to be there for like a couple years just so you can really digest and learn and kind of build that mental library learning from these more seasoned professionals but again like it's it's to me it's it's so cool that uh, you were, you were able to move up so fast. I think uh, our rights director, Michael Cheng. I think one of the things he's really amazing in doing is that he's really great at nurturing younger artists and kind of wanting to give them a platform to kind of learn and grow. And he like, he kind of like lets you do your thing, but he kind of still like looks over your shoulder and checks in, which is nice. And I appreciate that of, of Mike.
0: Yeah. I, I appreciate that too. Like you have to kind of understand how to communicate with people who aren't as experienced sometimes, Um, Mm -hmm. They might not have all the language that you know yet, but if you explain it in a very simple way, then you can communicate what you want to them anyway. If anybody ever gets an opportunity to work as a revisionist or even as like a non-art job, production assistant, whatever, try to take the initiative and absorb as much as you can. Like a lot of times you will have access to old art files Old storyboard files and animatics, and if you you can take the initiative to study from those, because like the the amount that's available to you once you start working in production is amazing.
1: Very, no, very very true. Yeah. Like um, like I I knew a friend who they were interning. That's all they did. They would dig into the files of shows <laughs> that they were on, shows that they even weren't on, and kind of like finding <laughs> reference storyboards, character designs. It's just like I need to learn and like digest all this information.
0: Definitely. And like what another thing you can do, like because productions will usually have each version of files as they're revised and worked on. You might want to try looking at older versions and then seeing how they were revised over time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it gives you a sense mm-hmm. of what wasn't working, what was working and why they cleaned up or changed certain things. When you're a revisionist, you also get a lot of mileage very quickly. Mm-hmm. For me, at least, that was the first time I was spending eight hours a day in front of a computer drawing, and you you just improve so fast when you put in the mileage. So take advantage of that. If you're in school, you can take advantage of that too. Um, but there's like no substitute for just doing it, even if you don't fully know what you're doing yet.
1: Yeah, because you're like you're spending 40 hours a week just drawing, and obviously, if you keep at it and it's you're going to see an improvement.
0: Yeah, definitely. Oh, but take care of your body because I, <laughs> I didn't really have great technique at the beginning. And like my wrist was hurting a lot the first couple of mm. weeks oh, when no. I transitioned, <laughs> but it got a little bit little bit better.
1: We've been talking about storyboarding in, in your career being a storyboard artist, but your first career path wasn't actually storyboarding. You brought this up in the beginning in your little introduction you were actually studying and graduated from the University of Washington with a bachelor's in electrical engineering. Why did you decide you wanted to pursue animation instead? Like, what caused that shift? I know you mentioned it wasn't, you didn't think it was a, an opportunity or a job available or didn't think, you didn't know much, but like, yeah, what, what happened?
0: I, I think other people might be able to relate to this, but my... Korean parents wanted me to go into something <laughs> very practical, like being an engineer or being a doctor. Mm-hmm. That be- like My parents are, are very supportive, but they didn't have the information on how animation could be a viable career. And I mm-hmm. didn't either, so, you know, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Uh, I was pushed pretty hard to go into engineering, and I think just because I didn't feel like like, I didn't know enough about other jobs to, like, really make a case for it. Mm-hmm. I kind of just went along with it. And they're like, there are aspects of engineering that I really like. But around my junior year of college, I enrolled in an animation capstone program that's offered by my school, hmm. which is, like, a, a year-long program. It's kind of like a boot camp for animation. We get a little bit of taste of every part of the, the pipeline. So... Modeling, lighting, concept art, rendering, all that. And then we spent six months creating a CG animated short. Cool. That's awesome. And that program just gave me, I don't know, it kind of changed my life.
1: (laughs) It gave you the fuel you needed?
0: Yeah, it it showed me that this was a viable career, that this is how things work when you work in industry. Um, We had a couple guest speakers and like, Some of them were, like, younger people who had also taken that program when they were in college and were now working in industry. So, like, seeing that pathway Mm -hmm. that was open was, like, really eye-opening. And I don't know if anyone's heard this advice before, but my parents used to say, even if you like art, if you do it as a job, you're not going to like it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, I guess I took that to heart and... But when I was taking that animation capstone program, I was spending like six, eight, even 10 plus hours working on animated related things. And I didn't hate it. So I was like, hold on. (laughs) If this was wrong, maybe my assumptions aren't all correct. I kind of had to make like a mental change during my junior and senior year. Like, did I actually want to pursue it? Because that's a very scary thing to say. Like, despite everything, animation is very competitive. Mm -hmm. And knowing that I didn't have the art school background, I did feel like I was a little bit behind maybe some of my other peers. At the same time, I was getting more aware of the fact that engineering really wasn't right for me as a career. I liked parts of it, but I wasn't passionate about it. Not the way I was about art. So mm-hmm. after I graduated, I kind of took a few art classes, but I didn't really know how to like make practical, effective steps to actually transition into pursuing animation. Like I had considered going back to school, but I really didn't want to. <laughs> I already had a student loan to pay off. I didn't want to <laughs> get another one.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, going off the schooling, like mm-hmm. you, you you, studied the art of storytelling at like CGA. Master's Academy, Gage Academy uh, of Art, and then Concept Design Academy, either during or after school, you went on this art education of like either online classes or workshops or like paid classes to kind of learn and grow your education. What did you find most helpful in that pursuit of an animation education for yourself?
0: CGMA, this is completely me and what I need from a class. I Mm -hmm. don't work super well in online classes. I really Mm -hmm. like having face-to-face interaction, so I probably didn't get as much out of that class as other people could. So like, I took those classes while I was still in Seattle, and I think they kind of helped me realize that this wasn't really an effective game plan. So I I decided it would be much more effective for me if I were to take physical classes from Concept Design Academy. Mm -hmm. I was very, very lucky in that I had family living in California, so I was able to move from Washington to California in order to take classes at Concept Design Academy. But in terms of effectiveness, it's like not even a contest for me personally. Concept Art Academy was the art education that I never received prior. And it was much more effective in helping me grow as an artist just because it was in person. And also the classes are good.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. To me, that's very amazing. The fact that like you went to school, you had a full education in a in a field that you're not pursuing because you realize it wasn't for you and you've had this passion and love for animation. The thing that I want the audience to understand is that you can end up in the industry taking many different paths. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to go to an art school. Obviously, it's beneficial if you do. Obviously, it's also beneficial if you go to a state school that has an animation program. But there is people working in the industry that don't realize that that's what they want to do until after they already got their degree in something else. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fine. And you can still work and grow and end up at the job that you want. It just like, like Christine, you have to make that choice and kind of follow through with it. Cause I'm pretty sure it probably was a hard decision for you to make. It was like, well, fuck, I already have my electrical engineering <laughs> yeah. degree. Mm-hmm. Do I want to spend more money on, on education? And it paid off for you.
0: Definitely. And mm-hmm. Like you were saying, it's not only normal, it's a lot more common than I realized. Once I started working and talking with my peers, I realized, oh my gosh, a lot of people that I'm working with come with non-art backgrounds mm-hmm. or just like art backgrounds, but not animation. Like I, I've seen people work in like fashion in design and graphic design in animation, well, you know, like animation and then going into
1: storyboarding. Comics. Mm -hmm.
0: Comics, yeah. The creator of Kipo, Brad Seacrest, he also, I believe, has an engineering background. Like, wherever you are, it's actually helpful, I think, if you have a unique perspective that you can offer and a unique skill set that you can bring to the table. Like, there's always Mm -hmm. going to be something you can bring. And as storytellers, the stories that we create are going to be better- and more diverse if the people working on them have had different experiences and come from different backgrounds. Mm. So whether, yeah, I mean, whether you're just like a high schooler trying to decide what you want to do, or like you're much older, it's definitely not too late to start if you're really passionate about it. Everything that I've learned to get to where I am today, I just learned. And like, it did take a lot of practice. And that is the main hurdle I think (laughs) for anyone who wants to break in the industry, it's just like, it's a lot of work and there's no shortcut, but if it's still worth it to you after that, then it's completely attainable and we could really use your perspective.
2: And I think like that also goes for the opposite for like people who do start to study animation and they feel like they have to just keep going because they've already invested time into it and it's okay to like change majors or like do something else like it, it also goes the other way in my opinion yeah. and like not to like i'm not gonna like put anyone down but if you like be realistic with yourself and you say like you know maybe it's not for me that's really it's okay and like you could like move mm-hmm. into production or something instead or you could like take on a whole different like a whole different career path like it's never too late people always think they have to do everything when they're like
1: really young <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're never too old to do what you want to do yeah
0: yeah i i sometimes lurk on like discord or reddit and there will be young people asking is it too late for me i'm 16 <laughs> i'm just like what do you mean <laughs>
1: what do you mean i love children okay, well i'm also i'm also not gonna lie though the level of talent that's coming from like young people that are growing up with instagram and oh twitter oh it's, yes. it's insane so i can understand why they might think it's too late mm. but you're ahead of the game
2: it's it's a little bit terrifying, but you know, it is.
1: I, I, I am terrified. <laughs> it's, it's never
2: too late. I mean, even Ray, like, I think about this a lot. Even Ray, like, when we started school, Ray, like, was not going to try.
1: <laughs> like,
2: Ray, no, no, for real. like, we've had this conversation no, before. Because, yeah, at hmm. our school, they don't do a portfolio like admittance because they can't. But um Ray, Ray is always like, "Oh yeah, grateful that they ca- they didn't because I would not have made it in," and like. We wouldn't be having this conversation today. It's like never too late. You just got to put in the work,
1: mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go to San Jose State with a portfolio. I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't have a sketchbook. I just doodled anime drawings and notepads <laughs> in high school. And I learned all of my fundamentals at San Jose State. I was just a quick learner. I had. I knew I had to put in the hours. And yeah, I, I went. I started. I think I say this all the time. I went into San Jose State with a theater background because I. I didn't take art classes in, in high school. I took theater.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show like your your starting abilities are by far not the most important thing
3: mm-hmm.
0: when you're beginning. Mm-hmm. It's, it's if you believe that this is the right path for you and you're willing to put in the effort to get there.
1: No, for sure. One of the things I also kind of want to talk about, um, because this is also a podcast about Black, Indigenous, and people of color and like how our backgrounds not only influence us as artists, but our work. How do you feel like your background influences the stories that you like to tell or your work in general?
0: It's a good question. It's a little bit difficult to answer because, I don't know, I've never met somebody with the exact kind of background that I have. Um, My parents Mm. are immigrants from Korea, but they immigrated at fairly young ages, so They're, they're like, pretty, like, integrated into American culture, and I grew up in an English-speaking household, and I also grew up, like, on Western media, so it's kind of this weird dichotomy where the things that are, like, comforting and familiar to me is generally, like, Western animation, Mm -hmm. and when I think about Korean culture, it's always filtered through the lens of my family which is not necessarily representative of all Korean culture. It's just, like, my family's quirks. And even, like, when I compare myself to, say, my grandparents, who are first-generation immigrants, and they immigrated at a much later age, they don't really speak English, and I don't speak Korean. So in the same way we kind of have a language barrier between us, there's kind of been a barrier between my personal life and Korea, As a as a culture. Like I I do want to explore Korean culture more because I know that's a part of my heritage. But I've also I've never lived in Korea. You know, the kind of Korea that my parents talk about is the Korea of like the 1970s. Like it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. The Korea that is in Korea right now is pretty foreign to me. And yeah, I guess I don't know exactly how that bleeds into my work. I'd like to explore it further. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is a common experience like, for other Asian Americans.
1: I I think it is. I think our generation, or a lot of like first or second generations in America, we face that gap between being too American or you're too this, or you're not enough of that, and it's just there. There is sometimes a language gap. There is that barrier between where your parents come from and how you were brought up. Because majority of the time, your parents immigrated to America hopefully to provide a better future for you. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it's a pretty common experience that our generation feels like, like, what is my connection to my culture? What is like there is sometimes that sense of divide and it's just trying to find that bridge between between the two. But I don't I don't think what you're going through is uncommon. I think it's something that we all kind of struggle with.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I guess I just want to get to a point where, like, I can feel comfortable just being whoever i am and not trying to feel like i have to fit into a certain mold Mm -hmm. whether it be like Mm -hmm. an american or a korean or whatever like the idea of a korean american's experience should be but you know still be willing to expand my horizons (laughs)
2: totally i agree yeah like especially on that individual level of like you know your very specific uh family heritage of like your grandparents are from korea but then your parents were born in Korea, but, like, came here at such a young age, they're basically just American. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, like, you're saying, yeah, the Korea that they remember no longer exists. I think that's kind of almost profound. Like, an interesting (laughs) thought, right? Yeah. Yeah, my grandparents were the same. They uh, When they came from China, they didn't speak... Well, my grandpa grandpa spoke English, but my grandma never spoke English. And even though she, like, loved us and uh, always, like, cooked food for us, she had her own way of communicating. But, like... I never, like, communicated clearly, like, in a, a spoken word to her. So, like, that's an interesting experience to me that, like, the idea of, like, communication. And I, I think about that, my relationship with my grandma and how that's different from, like, people who I can talk to and, like, how I was raised and stuff.
0: Yeah, this, it's totally the same. I I don't know. There's a little bit of sadness that I might not ever communicate with my grandparents in mm. the way native speakers will communicate with each other. And that's a little bit sad But, like, I never felt like we didn't love each other. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Mm -hmm. it's very much a part of Korean culture to communicate love through cooking and food (laughs) and forcing people to eat when they're not hungry.
1: You're too skinny. You need more meat (laughs) on your bones. Oh,
0: you haven't seen me since the pandemic started. (laughs) (laughs)
1: No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm I'm just saying the typical the typical thing your elders tend to say to you oh
0: yeah yeah it's it's like oh eat a little bit more no thank you how many i'm full it's like okay then just eat this much more
2: yeah i feel uh, personally i I feel kind of the same where i'm like i'm definitely more american than either of Mm -hmm. my like heritage cultures like japanese or chinese like i've never been to japan or china so like Mm -hmm. i'm definitely an american but i whether other people see it that way or whether i feel comfortable like Yeah, I've been presented that way. Uh, I don't know if we're there yet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it can Mm. be a little bit where, like, other non-Asian Americans might see me as Asian American or Asian Mm -hmm. right away. Whereas people who are, like, first-generation immigrants from Korea, they might see me as too Americanized.
3: Mm.
0: Like, I have been called, like, a banana by other Asians um, when I was in college because, like, they felt I was too white it's it's kind of a not yeah nice thing to say (laughs) yeah and then i i have been to korea not in a while but it's a weird feeling where everybody looks like you but you're a tourist Mm -hmm. and like what would happen is like people would come up to us in korea and ask for directions and then my family would be like sorry we have no idea we're (laughs) just in that hotel over there
1: (laughs) but yeah what i really hope um especially because it from from talking about this, it seems like we kind of all share like a similar experience. So hopefully, there is more stories that either we get to tell ourselves or other people with similar backgrounds to tell. Kind of that background of like not belonging to either culture or kind of that that generational gap. Because I feel like that's something that can be very interesting and very uh what's the word relatable.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: feel like especially again, America is becoming more diverse, more people immigrating, um, and then again like the generation that came here growing up from another country, being born here, uh, where their parents came from their country. Hopefully we see more of these stories.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And I hope this isn't like too Americanized or like America centric to say, (laughs) but like that kind of experience does kind of feel like a uniquely American experience. It's kind of an experience shared by a lot of immigrants across who have come from like a wide range of
1: different places
3: yeah,
0: mm-hmm. it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know, it's an interesting moment in history, an experience to live.
1: No, it very much is. To kind of go on the opposite of history, let's talk about the future. What future aspirations do you have for yourself in this industry, Christine?
0: For a long time, it was just become a storyboard artist, then I can check that one off.
2: <laughs> you did it. It's done. <laughs> yeah. The future is now. <laughs>
0: I would definitely love to expand on the kind of storyboarding that I do just to see what it's like, say, in working in feature rather Mm. than TV, Mm -hmm. maybe see what Mm -hmm. it's like working on a script-driven show. I might also like to become a director one day. I think that could be a really cool experience. My dream is to become my own showrunner because, you know, I have my own stories. I'd like to share them one day. Yeah. and i' I'd, mm-hmm. I'd also really love to teach one day i I love stuff like this i I want to help people who were literally where I was two years ago.
1: Oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. that's also to me like I would love to see you as a shortener. I would love to hear the stories that you want to tell but i think I think something that's also just as important is like you know teaching and like inspiring the next generation, helping along the next generation to get to where you, you are and hopefully they don't have to struggle as much or hopefully they have an easier transition.
0: Definitely. Like, I had so much help to get to where I am and so much support. So that's something that's really important to me. I would love to help other people. Kids these days, they have a lot of information available to them Mm -hmm. for free online. But it can be kind of overwhelming, I think, knowing how to filter it out, what's actually valuable. I don't know. Maybe that's something I'd like to help with. Help, Help students, like figure out what kind of information is helpful and how to, like, parse Mm -hmm. advice. Mm
1: -hmm. No, that's really great. On the topic of advice, uh, is there any final advice that you would want to bestow on those who want to pursue a career in the animation industry?
0: It's kind of interesting because I got a lot of advice before I got my job. And sometimes advice isn't helpful right away because you don't have the context to understand what, like, the meaning behind the advice is.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: I guess I will say, like it doesn't end once you get your job. I think my view of what working in industry was like before I started working was sort of this like mystical mountaintop where like once I get there, <laughs> I will be happy all the time, but
3: not that extreme.
0: <laughs> Maybe not that extreme, but it's sort of like once you're there, you know, you're, you're there at that next level. But I would see it more as just sort of like a steady climb and getting your first job is just a pit stop along this much, much longer road. If you learn how to learn and set goals for yourself, I think that might be a more important skill because you're going to keep using that one as you grow in industry. Like There's always another
2: mountain to climb. Excellent.
1: No, very well put.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you want to promote? Thank you for having me. This is really fun.
1: Thanks for (laughs) being on. (laughs)
0: I guess if you want to, you can <laughs> follow me on Instagram at picture underscore Chris. That's K-R-I-S.
1: All right,
2: cool. Well, if you enjoyed our interview with Christine today, uh, please write us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AP, and let us know your response to today's in-between questions. Or if you have any suggestions for future in-between questions, contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please contact us. We love discovering new artists and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. Also, quick shout out to Feedspot, who featured us on their Top 50 Animation Podcasts, You Must Follow in 2021. Uh, it came as a surprise to us out of the blue, which is really fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for uh, giving us a shout out and supporting the podcast. We're also working on getting our podcast officially on Apple Pods so that people can start reading it which would be fantastic if any of our audience could. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier.
1: Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest, who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.